Father, we thank you that you have united us as believers with your son, Jesus Christ. We are in union with him. As believers, we have the unfathomable privilege of participating with Jesus Christ, being incorporated into him. And Lord God, as we open your word this morning, my prayer, spirit, is that you would come and wield your word once again. Continue to transform us into the image of Christ. Form Christ in us is our prayer. Lord, that we would increasingly look more and more like your son, even as we go out into the world this week. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here's a poem I remember from my childhood. Brent, Brent, strong and able, get your elbows off the table. (coughs) This is not a horse's stable, but a first-class dining table. Does anyone know that poem? I can't remember if it was my mother or my siblings or both that uh, first taught that poem to me, uh, but I remember it. Um, as I sat there with my elbows on the table. I I do remember, though, there were other rules of dining etiquette that were likewise drilled into us, such as don't chew with your mouth open, right? Uh, Don't season your food before you taste it, otherwise it's an insult to the chef. was another one. Um, Always be sure to thank the host for the food uh, at the end of the meal. So on and so forth. So I think perhaps from an early age, many of us were taught similar rules of engagement at the dinner table, Western mealtime practices, acceptable manners of dining. Well, in the time of Jesus, when he walked the earth, there were certain dining practices, uh, certain social conventions at mealtimes that were practiced at the, at the dinner table, at mealtimes. There were very common practices. For example, when you came as a guest into a dining area, you didn't just sit anywhere. You knew that the specific location of your place at the table was directly connected to your social status. So you wanted to take your seat next to the host as close to the host as possible, because that position close to the host showed that you were somebody, that you were a mover and a shaker, that you were a person who drove big wheels and made big deals. The placement of your seat at the dining table was like an advertisement of your social status. And then secondly, In the time when Jesus walked the earth, there was something of an art to sending out invitations for a meal. So if you were hosting a meal, you were calculating, calculating in the invitations that you drew up. You didn't just invite anybody to your meal. You only invited people who you knew had the means to reciprocate. You only invited people who you knew would invite you later to a comparable meal. 
I'm not making this up. And likewise, when you accepted an invitation to a meal as a guest, your acceptance then was a commitment that you would host a similar party later and invite the person who had just extended the invitation to you. So there was an expectation in this culture of reciprocity. An invitation extended to you expected an invitation from you later on. Well, with all of that as background now, let's dive into our scripture text today, beginning with the first six verses of Luke chapter 14. And we invite you, if you have a Bible on a device or paper Bible, uh, please turn there. The first six verses of Luke 14. I want to give you a summary of these verses. So Jesus is a guest, okay, he's a guest at a dining table of a high-up Pharisee. The high-up Pharisee is hosting a Sabbath meal. So already we know that this was not a run-of-the-mill, everyday sort of a, a meal. Sabbath meals were special. As a host, you might spend a little bit more on the meal. You might put a little bit more time and effort into the prep to make sure that everything at this meal, this Sabbath meal, was just right. But right from the get-go of this Sabbath meal, there's tension in the air. Verse 1 says <clears throat> that as Jesus came, came in there to sit down as a guest at this table, the Pharisees were doing what? Watching him closely, carefully. In the original Greek text, there is a definite shade of hostility in this watching that the Pharisees are doing here. There is a maliciousness. There is a suspicion in this watching over Jesus. Luke has already used the same Greek word in chapter 6, verse 7, to describe a sort of accusatory watching over Jesus. And Luke is also going to use the same word later on in chapter 20, verse 20, where he describes a watching of Jesus with the intent to trap him. But here at 14.1, why, we ask, why are the Pharisees watching Jesus in this malicious, hostile sort of way? Well, as Eugene Peterson explained it, even as Jesus comes to sit down at this table, these Pharisees, and I'm quoting Peterson now, these Pharisees have seen what Jesus has been doing. Touching lepers, keeping company with women, telling flattering stories of Samaritans, including Gentiles as if they were equals, treating the hated tax collectors and despised prostitutes with dignity. They've been seeing what he has been doing. And so, friends, these Pharisees, already they are uptight. They are suspicious, even as they're sitting down with Jesus at this table. They are already inhospitable 
toward Jesus even as they present this thin, brittle veneer of mealtime hospitality. They are inhospitable while pretending to be hospitable as human beings can often do. And so already, this is not a very relaxed atmosphere at this table. And then, suddenly, behold, zoom in with your camera. A man appears before Jesus who has dropsy. He has congestive heart failure. This man is prone to fainting. He has a heart problem, probably low blood pressure attending this. Now, some Bible scholars have wondered here if this man with dropsy was planted here in front of Jesus by the Pharisees to see what Jesus would do with him on the Sabbath. They are watching him closely. Jesus asks them in verse 3, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And Jesus is then met with crickets. There is total silence. No reply from the watchful Pharisees. Well, Jesus then heals the man with dropsy and sends him on his way. And then Jesus asks another question of the Pharisees. Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? Again, to this question, Jesus gets more crickets. Silence from the Pharisees. Verse 6 says, and they could not reply to these things. Now, friends, remember the scene here. Okay, remember the scene. Jesus is an invited guest (laughs) at this table. Yes, the Pharisees have been watching him with an evil eye since he sat down, but Jesus the guest is not going out of his way to endear himself to the host here. Healing on the Sabbath as he has and provoking them with these difficult questions. This dinner party is already crumbling. It's already sort of teetering. There is an iciness that has definitely developed in the air here. Watch what happens in verse 7. We're doing a series on parables. Now he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor. When he noticed. This chapter had started, hadn't it, with the Pharisees watching Jesus. Now it becomes clear that it's Jesus who has been watching them. Yes? He's been noticing. He's been observing things about their mealtime practice. And so we ask the question, who is monitoring who here? And it seems that there's some watching that's happening on both sides, right? (laughs) He told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. Now, Jesus is there at this table with a crowd of Pharisees who would know their Old Testaments backwards and forwards, right? Better than we know our Old Testament, most of us. 
And so the parable that Jesus chooses to give here is clearly based on an Old Testament text that they would all know. That text is Proverbs 25, verses 6 and 7, which reads as follows. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. Those two verses of Proverbs 25 are clearly ringing in the background of the parable that Jesus now gives in Luke 14. He says to the host of the table and to the other Pharisees in Luke 14, verses 8 through 10, he's a guest at the table, okay? Remember that. When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. Again, remember, Jesus is an invited guest at this table. And what's he doing here? He's bringing a vocal critique to the seating arrangements. The nerve of this guest, right? But even more than that, Jesus, being Jesus, what's he doing? He's flipping upside down the accepted cultural practices, yes? As Jesus tends to do. Flipping upside down the accepted cultural practices. Remember our earlier description of how the seat you sat in at these meals and its proximity to the host was an advertisement of your social status. The closer to the host, the more important you were. The more important you appeared to others who were sitting around the table. And these Pharisees had come into this dining room doing what? Trying to secure for themselves these hotshot seats. In effect, they were using their host using their host and their proximity to the host to advertise their own importance, to make sure that they looked exalted. And these Pharisees at the table were inhospitable guests. Yes? So much inhospitability, inhospit, inhospitability? is that it? <laughs> Happening here at this table. These guests are using the host for their own self-promotion. What a messed up dinner party this is turning out to be. And so Jesus, the invited guest, is saying here, nah, don't do this, don't do this. Instead of choosing the most honorable places for yourselves, proceed directly, without passing go, to the lowest chairs in the room when you first come in, and let the, let the host of the party be the one 
to bestow the honor upon you for all to see. Let the host be the one to say, come up closer beside me. Because wouldn't it be a tremendous embarrassment to you in this honor-shame culture, wouldn't it be a tremendous embarrassment to you if when you came in and you chose that honorable seat for yourself, the host then came up to you and said, look, sorry, buddy, Uh, there's somebody here of higher status than you. I'm going to have to ask you to move down a few positions, right? And then as you get up, you pick up your cell phone, ancient Near Eastern cell phone, uh, you'd feel shame as you then had to sheepishly move down the table with all eyes on you. You'd be humiliated, and you'd want to avoid that. Well, a couple further observations, just as we're meditating on this text, observations to make as we sit with Jesus and the Pharisees at this awkward dinner party, First, Jesus has just healed a man of dropsy, right? That man had a physical problem, a physical illness that Jesus has addressed. But at this table with Jesus, there were these others who had another sort of illness. Can you see this? In the case of these Pharisees at this table, their illness was this unhealthy zeal to make themselves look important, to make themselves look exalted so that others would fawn over them and recognize the honor that they were advertising for themselves. This is their illness. And they're blessed and fortunate to have at the table with them the great physician who is addressing all the illness at the table. It's interesting to me that in the same 25th chapter of Proverbs, where we had that passage that Jesus bases his parable on, we also have a verse a little further down, verse 27 of Proverbs 25, that tells us explicitly that it's not glorious to seek one's own glory. It's not glorious to seek one's own glory. And these Pharisees were doing that very unsavory thing here at this dinner table. They were seeking their own glory. And God hates this when we human creatures seek our own glory and make efforts to exalt ourselves. Amen? A further observation or meditation here is that this is a Sabbath dinner, right? You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. And these Pharisees, they would want to criticize Jesus for the work of healing the man with dropsy on the Sabbath, but the question is, who's working here? Who's working here? These Pharisees are working. They are striving as they jockey around and tussle frantically for the best seats in the house. They are working on the Sabbath to promote their own importance. And so there's that irony that's happening here as well. These Pharisees who would chastise others for working on the Sabbath are themselves doing a a form of self-centered work on the Sabbath. 
So in verse 11, Jesus the guest then says to his host, imagine, says to his host and to the other Pharisees, everyone who exalts himself will what? Be humbled. And he who humbles himself will what? Be exalted. Again, we have to look at this and say, Jesus is such an expert here, right? Uh, As he utters this saying in verse 11, Jesus knows that these Pharisees, steeped as they are in their Hebrew scriptures, in their Old Testament, they've heard this before. They've already heard it in Ezekiel 21, 26, where we have the sentence, exalt that which is low and bring low that which is exalted. So as Jesus utters this saying in verse 11, again, what's he doing? He's purposely, he knows these are Pharisees, he's purposely connecting them to their Old Testament scriptures, which they claim to stringently obey. Talk about an icy dinner party here. But notice here, friends, that there are two actions, two actions that you and I can take right? Either exalting ourselves, oh, so tempting, so tempting, right? Exalting ourselves or humbling ourselves. And depending on which of those two actions we take, there is another actor, namely God, who will perform the polar opposite action on us. You see this? Notice the words here, be humbled and be exalted. God is the actor here. He is the one doing either the humbling on us or the exalting of us. So if we exalt ourselves, if we seek our own honor, if we promote our own importance, if we pursue our own glory, God will perform the opposite upon us and make sure to humble us. Yes? It's quiet. Conversely, if we humble ourselves, God will do the opposite and make sure to exalt us. And as Daryl Bach has put it, God is committed to exalting the humble. God is committed to exalting the The humble. So then, my friend, the rubber hits the road. What will be your application of verse 11 this upcoming week? What will be your application of verse 11 this upcoming week? What is a situation in your life upcoming or situations where you will commit to beg the Spirit's help to humble yourself. When your temptation will be to exalt yourself. So remember tomorrow morning or on Wednesday afternoon or on Friday morning that God rewards spirit-enabled humility in Christ. He rewards that with exaltation. Well, as, we've, as we keep saying, there's a layer of ice, a real layer of ice that's been forming over this entire dinner party uh, since verse 1. And now it gets even worse. 
beginning at verse 12, Jesus, the invited guest, now turns his attention from the seating arrangement that he's just addressed to the guest list. (laughs) Now Jesus turns his redemptive canons (laughs) to the host. Imagine the boldness of Jesus here turns his attention to the host. He questions his host as to why these particular guests were invited. Don't you just love Jesus? (laughs) How to ruin a dinner party the Jesus way. He said also to the man who had invited him to his host. And then I, I always imagine Jesus here, and this is just conjecture, but I always imagine him looking pointedly and slowly around the room at each guest as he says this. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers, he's looking around, or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. You see what's going on here? This has to do with the point that we made earlier, that the whole exercise of writing up invitations to a dinner party in this ancient culture was a calculated exercise. You only invited those to your party who you were very sure would be able to repay you later on by inviting you to a similar party. And Jesus purposes here, notice friends, he purposes to flip that well-ingrained social convention on its head. This is what Jesus does with human cultures. He says in effect, I know your invitation list. You invited the well-connected. You invited the rich, the CEOs and the CFOs and those close to you. And you did that expecting repayment from them for your invitation. I know that that's the standard practice in this culture, but, he's saying, the apparent apparent generosity of your invitation actually then becomes a self-serving thing. Your invitation is actually like currency that you are paying in exchange for something. And so here's what I want to do, says Jesus. I want to suggest an entirely different guest list. (laughs) Verse 13. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And this dinner table is now really quiet. <laughs> now to appreciate just how scandalous verse 13 would be in the ears of the host and in the ears of the other high up Pharisees that are sitting around this table, I want to take us to another text just briefly. So there was a community of extremely zealous and extremely pious Jewish people 
who lived in the desert at the same time when this dinner party was happening. And this desert community had written up a document called The Rule of the Congregation. And we have that document today thanks to the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And this ancient document gives us a very good and very accurate window into what groups like these Pharisees were thinking and how they thought. So in that document, there's a section about men of renown (laughs) and who could sit with the men of renown and who could not sit with the men of renown. There's a list of people who were absolutely forbidden from sitting with the men of renown. Here's how the list reads. So no one who was defiled in the flesh or paralyzed in his feet or in his hands could sit amongst the men of renown. No one who was lame, blind, deaf, mute, or defiled in his flesh with a blemish visible to the eyes or the tottering old man who cannot keep upright in the midst of the assembly. These shall not enter to take their place among the congregation of the men of renown. So that when this invited guest, Jesus, (laughs) says to his host and to the other Pharisees, you know, next time, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind to your feast. This would be absolutely scandalous in their ears. This guest list that Jesus was advocating for included the very people that the Pharisees had been making efforts to exclude and to shut out. Jesus is saying to the host and to the others, hey, great banquet, but you should have invited the marginalized. The marginalized? No doubt the Pharisees, I think, are thinking here, why in the world would we invite people that were of no use to us in the advancement of our social status? Yeah? Why in the world would we send out invitations to people who could never reciprocate our invitation by inviting us later to a meal that they prepared? Why would we do that? What advantage to us would there be to simply collapse the social distance between us and them? In fact, what would be the purpose of us even hosting a meal if it did nothing for us? This is what they're thinking. Jesus has dropped a bomb here at this dinner table. Jesus has noticed their metaphorical elbows on the table, and Jesus is saying to them, Pharisees, Pharisees, strong and able, get your elbows off the table. Change this. Jesus is insisting on change, a change of the guest list, a change of the seating arrangements, a change of hearts, yes? My friends, Jesus has a way of disturbing and upsetting our settled arrangements, no matter what culture we have come from or are presently in. Listen to what he says in verse 14. He says that when you invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind to your feast, you will be blessed. Why? Because they cannot 
repay you. Now, do you see the strange math in God's economy here? You and I, when we give to somebody, so often, even though a lot of us would never admit this, so often we expect the repayment of at least a thanks. Yes? And if for some reason the thanks for the gift that we have given the person is not forthcoming, it bothers us. Yes? Why? (laughs) Thank you for being honest. Why didn't she even say thanks? Right? And so there is so often this calculation when we give. We expect at least some form of repayment. But our Lord is telling us here that there is a blessing in giving, in extending care, in providing a feast, even when there is no form of repayment at all from the person or the persons that we have given to. I remember hearing a pastor say one time, it's always stuck with me because I think it's great, Uh, This was in the context of his church blessing people, surprising them with Christmas hampers. And he said the best way to do that is to simply leave the hamper on the back porch with a note that says, from God, and walk away before the recipient can even see you or say thanks to you. You will be blessed because they cannot repay you. There's blessing. There's blessing. He flips over our our cultural understandings, does he not? The guest lift in in, in verse 13 here, the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, they would not have the means whatsoever in this ancient context to repay the invitation with a meal that they would later provide. And you would also not gain any social capital from having these people at your table. There would be no repayment from them for the turkey that you have carefully cooked and for the cranberry sauce that you made from scratch. Jesus says, send them your invitation. Be uncalculating in your hospitality. Yes? Uncalculating in your hospitality. Abandon all need for people to reciprocate. Stop playing your social games you will be blessed in the inviting and blessed in the eating. You will be blessed by God. And he says at the end of verse 14, if you're still concerned about payment, you will be repaid. (laughs) Yes, you will be repaid, just not necessarily in your 80 or 90 years on this earth. You will be repaid when? At the resurrection of the just and you leave it there. Now, we're not going to detail the next section of Luke 14 for the sake of time this morning, but just a very brief whirlwind summary. So in verses 16 through 24, Jesus tells another parable about a master of the house, we probably know this one, who invites many, there's children's songs written about this one, who invites many to his banquet, and three of those many Uh, make up excuses as to why they can't come. I cannot come to the banquet, don't trouble me now. You know that song? I learned it as a kid. 
But the master of the house uh, gets wind, right? He gets wind of their excuses. He becomes angry. And so what does he do? He quickly ditches the social games. And he sends his servant out to invite who? The poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And when they have all come to the table, there's still some empty seats. And so an additional search is made for guests. The, the search is widened so that the house can be filled with guests. What's Jesus doing there? He's telling his host and he's telling the other Pharisees, hey, all you guys have been invited to God's end time feast, the feast of all feasts, but you are the three excuse makers in the parable. You are refusing to come to God's banquet. And how? By your refusal to demonstrate God's heart while you prefer to promote your own self-glory, yes? See, by demonstrating all this inhospitability, inhospitality, boy, I need a nap later today. All this inhospitality at this state, this lack of hospitality as you have, you are in effect saying no to the hospitality of God. Well, my friend, again, as we wrap this up, how will you and I, it's not, listening to a sermon is just not listening and gaining information, we're after application. The doing of God's word. And so how will you apply this sermon this week? As you endeavor, tomorrow morning, Tuesday morning, Thursday morning, as you endeavor to walk circumspectly with your God in everything that you do, public and private, how will you apply this text this week? How has God spoken to you this morning? Where might your hospitality have to change this week? I think it may help us if we come to grips with our identity as the blind, the lame, and the crippled, the weak. Think of the cross. God so loved us, my Christian brother and sister, God so loved, think of it, God so loved his feeble, little, sinful, rebellious enemy creatures, dead in our transgressions and sins against him. He so loved us that he went to the sheer extravagance of sending his only son to be executed in the most torturous way imaginable as the substitutionary sacrifice who would endure the penalty of our sin, Jesus went to the cross to absorb the wrath of God that was due to us for our transgressions. Now I ask you, is there any possible way for us to repay God for that outrageous undeserved hospitality that he has shown us. Forgiving us as he has, reconciling us, bearing our penalty, adopting us, giving us his spirit, giving us eternal life. Is there any way to repay that? 
Of course there isn't. There's no way for us to repay that hospitality, but we are indwelt by the Spirit as believers, yes? We must ask ourselves this very week for humility in our lives. Most of us aren't self-aware enough to know where pride is showing, pride is building. We must beg the Spirit for humility in our lives. We must ask that in the same way that God shows no favoritism with the likes of us, that he, will, he would enable us to do the same, to go out and to be hospitable to everybody. Everybody. Even to the least of these. Even to that person who drives you crazy be hospitable to that person, and that we would demonstrate the compassion of our Lord in every situation, even when it's inconvenient for us, even with people who tend to bother us. So again, the question I'm going to leave you with, how specifically will you be hospitable this week? May God nudge you, show you, and be your helper. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, may each of us, in every hour of every day coming up this week, no matter what mood we're in, no matter what situation we find ourselves in, may we remember your outrageous hospitality toward us. Not only in the manner of saving us, but each and every day of our lives, Lord. You are the one that keeps breath in our lungs, keeps our heart beating, provides for us, keeps us with sound mind, all of the things that you do, Lord, may we be hospitable to those around us who don't deserve it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.